0: The joyousness and the particular nature of allowing us to gather together today is truly an uplifting thing to each of us. And we might well begin with those famous words of 1 Chronicles 16, 29 Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Indeed, today the privilege and prerogative that we have of assembling as the creatures of His, to adore, to honor Him, and to worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4 24. Is truly an uplifting thing, and what better way to begin the week? This morning, as we have the opportunity to continue our study of the Revelation, specifically chapter 20 is where we will be this morning, but let me introduce that with at least one brief announcement. Brother Ted made mention of somewhat of it earlier. Next Lord's Day, my family and I will have the opportunity to be a part of a gospel meeting effort in White County at the Hebron Church of Christ, so I'd like to add that one, if I might, to that list of gospel meetings. If you happen to have opportunity to come be with us uh, out of Sparta, there are about 8 or nine, ten miles or so, but please feel free to come. Service at 7 o'clock nightly, Sunday through Friday. It uh, goes again Sunday morning to Friday night. So feel free to come be with us if at all you have opportunity to, in fact, do that. We certainly will miss being here with our good brothers and sisters at Pippin but how lovely it is to consider the talented men who are not only able but ever willing to step into the pulpit or other places to serve in a public way. And I certainly continue to be ever appreciative eternally for for those men who are willing and able to do that. The 11th installment of our series of lessons on premillennialism takes us today to a lesson entitled The Thousand-Year Reign and the Binding of Satan. Those two things very much go hand in hand, and thus we'll study them together in the course of our lesson this morning, the thousand-year reign and the binding of Satan. We have already learned so many things about premillennialism in this series, and certainly as the weeks go by, we arrive at the character of trying to quickly assimilate it, or at least review it, is becoming more and more challenging. But those highlight each of the lessons that we have to this point considered. The necessity of Bible authority, the error of premillennialism's suppositions. In the third lesson, why did the Lord come to this earth the first time? We noticed that the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament pointed directly to Christ and to the wonderful church that he established. We came to see in those that followed that there was no surprise in the Lord's coming. The Old Testament had foretold it. And furthermore, we even saw in the lessons following that one, the falsehood associated with the rapture as it's taught by premillennialism, by the tribulation as well. We then looked at, interestingly, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, the 70 weeks of Daniel. All along, desirous to lift high what the Scriptures have to say and never to insert what we have heard or what, in fact, man might have been tempted to say. Last week we looked at the Battle of Armageddon and found that that one mentioned in Revelation 16 was very different from what we often hear, having, in fact, the very nature of that tremendous victory of the nature of God over all that is evil. For Jesus is still affirmed, King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, verse 14. As this series begins in its closing stages, there aren't that many lessons that remain. Today, though, let's look at the thousand-year reign, and in fact, the binding of Satan. You may have noticed in Brother Jonathan's reading from Revelation 20 a moment ago, the very placement in which we find the description of that thousand-year reign. If you'd like to turn back to that place, we'll be referring to it rather extensively in just a moment. I thought, though, that it would be wise to at least begin the lesson with a review as to why, from premillennialism's point of view, this binding of Satan and this thousand-year reign are so important. In fact, this is supposedly what is supposed to happen. After that seven-year tribulation period, as that period winds to its close, the Antichrist will have appeared by then, so we are told. Christ in all of his resplendent glory is supposed to appear, crush and defeat the Antichrist, all of course of the evil that goes along with him. And after that dissimulation of all the evil, he is supposed to begin a thousand year period of reign in Jerusalem on David's throne. That thousand-year period is supposed to be a period of prosperity and peace, with all the evil vanquished, with good rising to the top, of course set forth by the goodness of Christ. We appreciate that period of a thousand years is supposed to be truly a paradise on earth. It is supposed to be a utopia in which folks understand what it's like to live in harmony and in peace. There's no crime. There's no evil of any sort it is truly supposed to be a utopian existence here on earth. That is what we are told. In fact, you may have had individuals come and knock on your door and try to leave you pamphlets that, in fact, say something like this. Our desire and our wish this morning is to ask, does the Bible teach that? Do we find in Revelation 20, where that thousand years is discussed and mentioned, do we find the very description of what I have just supposedly told you? you might notice at the bottom a very interesting statement, in fact, to be made. The thousand-year reign is found in one passage of the Bible and one passage only. It's in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, the very text that was read earlier. And thus I might submit that if the Bible teaches that anywhere, surely this is the passage. But on the other hand, if it is not taught in this passage, it stands to reason that it will not be found anywhere else either what then does Revelation 20 set before us? Does it assert this utopian paradise of a thousand years with Christ reigning on David's throne in Jerusalem? I would ask that we look at five observations about this particular text this morning. As we look at these observations, we will reach a rather decided conclusion relative to the nature of what is asserted. As we begin, let's note at least at the outset, There is a very basic set of guidelines that we should ever utilize as we approach a particular section of Scripture like this one. Certainly one in those prophetical books of the Bible and apocalyptic at that. Books again like, say, Zechariah or Ezekiel or the Revelation. That particular principle might well be affirmed in this fashion. The book of Revelation is exceedingly symbolic It uses greatly the notion of figurative language, symbolic approaches. That's the way in which the truth is presented. In fact, the opening verse of the book reminds us of that fact. In Revelation 1 verse 1, as that verse closes, the Lord himself said, This is the message that was signified to John. That word signified in Greek, it has behind it the notion of truth presented in signs truth presented in a fashion which is largely visual in character. That being said, we thus appreciate that the bulk of this book is presented in that fashion. That thus leads us to see that no figurative passage that perhaps might in fact be a difficult one at that should ever be rightly interpreted in a way that contradicts and opposes the plain words of another passage elsewhere. Thus, when we find Jesus himself speaking in, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about the end of time, and whether or not there's to be the character of what's called a thousand-year reign, whatever the Lord asserted must be in harmony with anything that can be found in a very figurative passage like this one. In fact, we find in Psalm 119, verse 160, a passage which reads like this, The sum of thy word is truth. That's the American standard rendering of it. The King James reads it, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. As we appreciate then that the sum of God's word is truth, no part can be taken in a way that contradicts another. In fact, we also see in Acts 17.11 that those noble folks and Berea were highly complimented for appreciating that very thought. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. As you and I thus search the scriptures and desire to glean the nuggets of God's truth, let's see what our second lesson then might very well be. It's always been a very interesting thing to appreciate how symbolic Revelation chapter 20, in fact, is. I've asked you to notice just a few of the things, and you probably noted it as it was read just a moment ago. But notice just a few of the things that are mentioned in that passage. There's a key. There's a chain. There's a thousand years. We notice there are thrones. There's a mark. In addition to all of that, there's a dragon and there's a bottomless pit and what's more we can assert that there is in fact even a number of other things that i have chosen not to include on that particular listing but notice as we give some thought to what those are affirming are we to appreciate that the chain is literal is the dragon in terms of being cast into a bottomless pit literal is it the case that mark is literal should one appreciate the thrones are literal. Do you note then the question that's being raised? How are we to look upon these things? And might we assert that if one reaches a conclusion relative to all of them with one exception, and one's question still has to do with a thousand year reign, if we conclude the bottomless pit is symbolic, and if the thrones are symbolic, and if the chain is symbolic, If all of them are symbolic, should it then not follow the thousand years, is also a symbolic way of presenting truth. In fact, it stands to reason the bottomless pit can't be literal. There is no pit without a bottom. That's an actual real thing. You and I could never take a shovel and dig a bottomless pit. But yet we find in here John spoke about one. Isn't it interesting then to note this? That thousand years is right in the midst of this discussion. If all the others are symbolic, surely the thousand years would be as well. But that only takes us to lesson three, or at least our third observation. Those who lift high this chapter for its presentation of this paradise reigned by Christ on earth, might I ask you to note some of the things that are not present in this passage. One would read the entirety of Revelation 20 and you'll notice that these things are not mentioned anywhere. Interesting, isn't it? What's not there? The rapture is not here. There is no reference to it, no illusion to it. There's no tribulation mentioned in this chapter. Not anywhere to be found. In addition to that, where is the second coming of Christ in this? In fact, is the word Christ anywhere in this chapter? Furthermore, what else is not there? Does one specifically find a reference to the reign of Christ, R-E-I-G-E? Now there are reign of saints, but there is no reference anywhere in this chapter to the reign of Christ. Furthermore, we might notice where is the bodily resurrection in this chapter? It is conspicuously missing. Isn't it interesting that all these matters that form such a vital part of what premillennialism asserts, and they in fact tie it to the thousand years of this chapter, and yet those matters are not here anywhere. But we are not finished. Where is Jerusalem in this chapter? You might have noted earlier I said supposedly Christ, we are told, will reign in Jerusalem on David's throne. Where is the mention of Jerusalem anywhere in Revelation chapter 20? Finally, might one appreciate where is the mention of prosperity and peace, the utopian reign that I alluded to earlier. As you can well see, isn't it somewhat striking to the mind and stunning to the appreciation that these matters that are so fundamental to premillennialism and to the approach of the thousand year reign for them, they are not in this chapter anywhere. It is with those things in mind I would ask us then to. Visit very carefully. What then are the two principal things in the first ten verses of this chapter? You'll notice that the binding of Satan is mentioned in a thousand years. What is being asserted by these teachings? If it's not what the premillennialism doctrine sets forth, what is the truth of God on that subject? Might we devote the rest of our lesson this morning to an understanding of what that has to say for us? First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we do find the following statements. And since that was read earlier, I will not reread it, but you'll notice that a great chain was used to bind the dragon, to bind this one who was the great archenemy of God and this one who had caused such turmoil and trouble for the saints of God. It is greatly interesting to appreciate what took place just before Revelation 20 opened. As you and I were to sit down and read through the book of Revelation, we would, of course, finish chapter 19 and then begin chapter 20. You might want to read with me verse 20 of chapter 19. It says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Throughout the Revelation, particularly as we note from chapter 10 onward, there had been a number of players on the stage, and these were evil things to be sure. There were those two notable beasts, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land. We also remember the one who was behind those henchmen, The one who was providing them their power was none other than the dragon himself. As we then read through the book, we've seen the end of Babylon, the Roman Empire crushed, and as chapter 19 ends, the two beasts are gone. They have been cast into a lake burning with brimstone. They are no more troubling those individuals who are desirous of serving the God of heaven. The two beasts are gone. Who is left? Who is yet to be eliminated the dragon. Remember, there's two beasts and a dragon. The beasts are now gone. There's a dragon left to be dealt with. God hasn't forgotten him. That dragon we remember is the devil. Back in chapter 12, we encountered him as the deceiver of the whole world. In fact, John had seen the fact he was cast out of heaven having been defeated. Now it's time for the dragon to meet his final and ultimate end. In Revelation 20 is the record of it. Just as surely as thus the beasts are now gone, we now have the record of the final disposition of the dragon. What shall befall him? What is his destiny? Where shall he end up? We have already read it as we proceed onward through the chapter. Look at some of the next notes to appreciate what the significance of this is. How important is it that Satan, this old dragon and serpent, be bound? We already remember Jesus often referring to him and the New Testament writers as well. For it's true, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And he is that very one whom Jesus affirmed in John chapter 12, I saw with Satan as lightning fall from heaven. The Lord thus certainly vanquished him while he was here on earth because Jesus lived a sinless life and died that way. But John, it seems, was told something a little different than that. It's true, the Lord had previously affirmed that, as a strong man, I have entered the strong man's house and spoiled his goods, Mark 3.27. Jesus stated in Luke's version of the same thing in Luke 11, that in fact Satan is the strong man, but a stronger than the strong man is now here. The Lord, no doubt, was referring to himself. He, by the great power of a true and sinless life, had entered the strong man's house, the place where Satan had previously ruled and reigned. But I have spoiled his goods. Satan removed, or had removed from him the power of the club of death. Jesus, by the offer of eternal life, and the opportunity of those who faithfully obey him, all of us can have victory over the devil. All of us can enjoy victory and triumph over him. Second Corinthians 2 verse 14 reminds us we are always led in triumph in Christ. You and I are winners as long as we remain faithful and loyal to the Christ himself. And thus, as this message was delivered by Christ ultimately to John, isn't it interesting what he has in store for those who are the saints of God of that first century era? You'll note that very third point, the binding of Satan. What was the manner in which Satan had been able to bring such persecution against the saints of the first century, and even for, in fact, a couple of centuries thereafter? In many ways, it extended for a number of centuries. It was the nature of what was involved in those two beasts. Remember the two beasts we learned in our study of the Revelation earlier? had to do directly with the Roman Empire. One, the cult of emperor worship. The other, the greatness of that empire itself. As those beasts represented those matters. We notice the beasts are gone, Revelation nineteen twenty. But Satan, the one behind them, is still alive as chapter 20 opens. However, you'll notice he's now been bound. Bound for a thousand years in a bottomless pit with a great chain. Not to be understood as if there's a literal dragon bound with a literal metal chain in a literal bottomless pit. But in as much as Satan is that dragon, we find a restraint on the power of Satan. He was not free to do that which he would like to do in approaching you and me in this era, or in fact, eras gone by. God has restrained him. Now, might we understand that we can appreciate a bit about a type of restraint all throughout the Scriptures. Even in the book of Job, are we not of a position to recall on that occasion God allowed him to touch Job's life. God allowed him to take Job's possessions, but you must not, you cannot take his life. Notice there was a restraint on Satan even then. In the New Testament era, we find interesting that there's no temptation that can take you or me, but such as is common to man. And furthermore, there is a guaranteed way of escape. God will not allow Satan to tempt you or me in a way beyond what you and I are able, by the usage of Scripture, by the usage of the innate power of the Word to overcome. In a sense, there is a restraint on Satan there. What kind of restraint is being discussed here, this binding for a thousand years? Might it in fact be the following? Isn't it interesting there is a mention in verses 3 and 4 of deceiving the nations? Deceiving the nations. It appears once in verse 3. It will appear later in verses 8 and following. The Roman Empire had been able by her military might in her military reign to deceive many nations. And in that deceit, of course, ultimately with Catholic falsehood, was able to bring many into error. We apparently have God's promise here that Satan is being restrained to where he is not in a position of being able to use a nation anymore like he used Rome. Never again, apparently, will he be able to employ a nation in such a fashion as he did Rome, to in fact enslave and persecute in a worldwide fashion his people, the church. That's not to say that he doesn't work on a local level. It's not to say he's not able to work in a more protracted fashion. But it would appear that he's not able to use a nation any longer like he once did. With that restraint upon him, might we notice where that leads us as our next observation. It does say that in verse 3, he will be loosed a little season. A time for a little season to be loosed. We understand certainly, again, a symbolic reference, but there must be some truth to it. Later we find in verses 7 and 8, that little season is mentioned again. What shall happen then when that loosing takes place? When the restraint is no longer in place? There are a few things that you and I could well appreciate. And it perhaps could be stated like this. Does that mean that error will abound in such a way that there will be a clear sign of the end of time? Apparently not. The scriptures elsewhere, for instance, the Lord himself said that his coming will be like a thief. There are no signs for it. No one will be able to deduce by appropriate political considerations, cultural considerations or otherwise that the second coming is near. Through the centuries, many have erred in that fashion. They've asserted that all the signs line up, the planets are in proper alignment, the second coming is upon us. Many have been deceived and deluded. Jesus said there will be no signs. Whatever this little loosing involves, it will not be of a character that you and I or others who are alive will be able to determine that the Lord's second coming is near at hand. In fact, the only things in the New Testament asserted in regard to the second coming of Christ in which there are certain things that must have happened, those have already happened. The second coming could now happen any time. With regard to those matters, how does that slide close? As we give some thought to these bindings of Satan and this character of loosing for a little season that really only leaves us with one more question to ask. We've learned then that premillennialism is far wrong with regard to this thousand-year reign. It's nothing like this utopian reign on earth. This thousand years spoken of here began when Rome fell. And furthermore, it'll continue until very near, it would seem, the end of time. We are in the thousand years now. We aren't waiting for some special reign on earth. We aren't looking for a period of peace and prosperity. The Bible doesn't promise it. Rather, we perhaps can ask, as you give some thought to that thousand years, some more extended thoughts might be in order. Having looked at the binding of Satan, who is said to be the ones reigning during this thousand years and where does the reigning take place? You might have noted in verse 4, John saw the souls of various ones who had been beheaded for the cause of Christ. He didn't see people alive on earth. He saw souls beheaded for the cause of Christ and who had given their life for the testimony of truth. So if he saw souls, where did he see them? They certainly weren't on earth. So the particular place in which the thousand years is taking place with its reign must not be here on earth. That's very different from what we are told in premillennialism, isn't it? Jesus in Jerusalem on a literal throne there? No way. In fact, this passage does not teach that at all. Where else have we seen these particular souls in the book of Revelation? It is a continuing thread, and it is a vital story. We first encounter them in Revelation 6 verse 9. When on that occasion, as the fifth seal was unloosed from that book, we notice John saw someone. He saw those beneath the altar who had been beheaded for the cause of Christ, those martyrs who had given their life for the cause of truth. At that point, being beneath the altar, it appeared as if they were defeated, dejected, disappointed. Their cause was lost and they had no hope. But as the chapters roll by, In chapter 15, we see them again. Now they're not beneath the altar. They're standing on the glassy sea. The throne of God's in the distance, the cares of the world behind them. Victory's almost theirs. Chapter 20, we see them the one last time. Now, notice these who first had been beneath the altar, these who later we saw standing on the glassy sea, now they're reigning with Christ. Victory's now theirs. Their cause had been vindicated. That for which they gave their life had now been resurrected to power and majesty And mind. Christianity, far from being defeated by Rome, was now that which was offered to all humanity. That's the victory we find in Revelation 20. And it is nothing like what premillennialism reminds us or tells us, is it? In fact, as you go down that list, when one gives thought about, apparently, when this thousand years commences, notice the beasts were defeated in Revelation nineteen twenty. We find since this apparently begins just after that, Rome fell about 500 A.D. It was about 476. And we find following that that Ezekiel 37 rings so beautifully in our mind. In Ezekiel 37, we read about a valley of dry bones, God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what do you see, son of man? Ezekiel said, I see a valley full of dry bones. Her bones are dried and her hope is lost. They appeared to be dejected, hopeless, out of the way, and absolutely defeated. Dead bones everywhere. But God said, son of man, now what do you see? Ezekiel looked again. He said, I see those bones with sinew and muscle attached. I see now a large host of the army of God. Those bones had come to life. There was the resurrection of the cause of ancient Israel, that people that looked so defeated in Babylonian captivity, that looked hopeless and without any possibility of bringing forth the glory and grandeur of God's eternal plan. Ezekiel saw a remnant. He saw a resurrection. John sees something very similar. Note the wording of verse 5, this is the first resurrection. The cause for which those martyrs died had been resurrected. God, through Christ, told John, this cause is not defeated. The gospel plan of salvation will ring true and multitudes will have access to it. Rome will not crush it. The world and Satan, the dragon, will be unable to bring it to an end. And thanks being to God, we have that plan of salvation preached today in its truth and in its power. That resurrection of the cause of the gospel is now known known to you and me so interestingly. And as the chapter rolls onward, we have what brings us to the final comments of today. We find the end of that devil ultimately and finally in verse number 10. Remember, he'd been bound for that thousand years in that bottomless pit. But then in verse 10 it says, after being loosed for just a little while, it says the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Guess what? He's cast the same place the two beasts were sent earlier. He's cast the same place in which those who do not follow the gospel are sent in verses 11 to 15. Isn't that a frightful consideration? And perhaps that's the way to close the lesson today. The thousand-year reign the binding of Satan, in many ways they do go hand in hand, summarized in language like this. We've learned as we've studied about the premillennialism's claim that one more time it is so different than what the Bible teaches. There is to be no reigning of Jesus on David's throne literally in Jerusalem. Jesus is reigning right now at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. And as he reigns right now over spiritual Israel, he is reigning on David's throne. In fact, the angel Gabriel told Mary that not long before he was born. Luke 1, verses 31 to 35. In the lessons that we will use to complete this series on premillennialism, we will revisit this from a different angle. And as we look at it, we'll use some other passages from Old and New Testament that in fact prove without a doubt that the premillennialism scheme is biblically impossible. In fact, one or more Bible writers had to be a liar if premillennialism scheme is true. And thus, who will you and I believe? The inspired writers of the Word of God or what some man has said about a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. May you and I never fall prey to thinking that that literal thousand-year reign in Jerusalem will happen. And there are those that, though they look forward to that, they think they should live now so they can enjoy that then. They are sorely mistaken, for that's never going to happen. We each need to live now so that judgment, that description of Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, will be a favorable time for us. When the books are open, friend, what will be the verdict for your life? When the book of life is opened, and in fact the Lord proceeds to look down that book, is your name there? Is it there right now? If you had to write on a piece of paper and sign your name, my name is in the book of life, could you sign it truthfully, honestly, faithfully, and convincingly? If not, why not? Jesus, you see, He died that your name might be there. He died that you might have citizenship not in Tennessee, not in Putnam County, but in heaven. Philippians 3.21. So where is your citizenship? If your name isn't in the book of life, it's for one of two reasons. That you have not obeyed first the first principles of the gospel. Those are listed and discussed in Hebrews 6 beginning in verse 1. Have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed His name as Lord and Master and been baptized? If not, let this morning be the morning. If you have done that but haven't lived true to that confession that you made why not come back to your first love? We'd be honored to pray with you and for you and what a change you would make in your life. If either of these are the things that you need today, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?